So, Josh, tell me a random fact about yourself. Well, I have walked alone through the yard of a maximum security federal prison. Really? (laughs) (laughs) And this is not on cocktail-related business, I take Uh, it? Definitely not on cocktail-related business. Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. Force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's up, cocktail fans? I'm coming to you right now from the Tales of the Cocktail Conference in the hallowed cocktail city of New Orleans, Louisiana. But just because I'm spending all week learning about cocktails, drinking them, and enjoying all the culinary riches this city has to offer doesn't mean I get a free pass on the podcast. So moving forward here, I think I'm going to try a little something different by starting out each episode with a featured cocktail. Maybe it's my guest's favorite cocktail that episode, maybe it relates to the topic of the episode, or you know what, maybe I just want you to drink something delicious and completely unrelated to anything we're talking about. This episode's featured cocktail is the Manhattan, and you'll see why that makes sense in a few minutes when my guests and I use it as sort of a litmus test for comparing different bitters and vermouths. Now, many of you have encountered this drink before, and if there were a cocktail version of Mount Rushmore, the Manhattan would definitely be carved up there right beside the Old Fashioned and the Martini. Manhattans are classy, versatile, and timeless, uh, and you can use any number of whiskeys, vermouths, and bitters to achieve slight variations on the same recipe, and for me, that's one of the great joys of bartending. The ancient Greek thinker Heraclitus said famously, you can't step in the same river twice, and I think the Manhattan certainly proves that rule with the sheer number of possible ingredient variations available in today's market. Now, how do you make a Manhattan? Pretty easy. Two ounces of American whiskey, Rye's traditional, but bourbon's great too. One ounce of sweet vermouth, several dashes of orange bitters, and all you do is combine all those ingredients in a mixing pint with ice and stir until chilled. Then you strain it into a stemmed cocktail glass and garnish with an expressed orange peel. Now, of course, we'll talk more about the Manhattan in the show, but I wanted to give you the chance to make yourself one if you're listening to this at home and aren't planning on driving or operating any heavy machinery. So definitely tag at Modern Bar Cart on Instagram and share your drinks with us if you do that. Moving on to the subject matter at hand, my guest this episode is Josh Wolf of the Wolf Cocktail Den. He's a great guy. He's really passionate about making delicious cocktails and connecting with other people over well-made drinks. The goal of this episode is to give you a high-level overview of the unsung heroes of the cocktail ingredient world, bitters, vermouths, and liqueurs. But in addition to a lot of great knowledge about those, we also hit a few other topics, including, but not limited to, the similarities and differences between bitters, vermouths, and liqueurs, historical oddities, and word origins, the bitters, vermouths, and liqueurs you should have on your bar cart, how James Bond disrupted the martini, the value of drinking with your grandfather, and much, much more. This is a fairly lengthy and widely ranging discussion, and I'm not helping any by dragging it out, so... I'm going to get out of the way here and let you enjoy my interview with Josh Wolf. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick, and I am hanging out today with 
Josh Wolf from the Wolf Cocktail Den. We're actually in the Cocktail Den itself, uh, and you can check out some photographs of that in the show notes. But Josh, thanks for joining me. Eric, I well, thank you for having me on uh, part of the Modern Bar Card. It's it's fantastic uh, to be here. I'm I, it's great for me because in the cocktail world, so many people have been nice to me and having me learn things and if I figure if I can pay that forward a little bit that would be absolutely fantastic definitely well I'm glad to have you here and I would love it if you could just tell folks a little bit about who you are maybe your general background and then what it is specifically that you do that pertains to cocktails sure Uh, well again as Eric mentioned I'm Josh Wolf of Wolf Cocktail Den, the proud founder of it. Wolf is spelled W-U-L-F, not wolf like the animal. Even though I've been a unrepentant cocktail drinker for many, many years, it wasn't until three years ago, back in 2014, where I finally had the wherewithal to start the Wolf Cocktail Den. That year, my lovely wife, Lisa, also known as Ms. Wolf Cocktail Den, attended the Tales of the Cocktail Conference in New Orleans, met a lot of great people, and that was really what inspired me to start the den. I am not in the industry at all. Uh, I have never been in the industry. I am, as I like to say, I'm a professional amateur when it comes to cocktails. I have a lot of fun with it at home and I've met a number of people and you you get to meet people and and learn about different drinks and I like not only making the drinks, uh, I sort of view it as sort of the three C's, you know, you're creating the drinks, communicating about the drinks, and hopefully ideally connecting with other people over the drinks, whether it's live as we're doing today, whether it's the person sitting next to you at the bar, or ideally somebody who's listening to our podcast today, it'll maybe in their own home, try something a little different or a variation on something that they know, or God forbid, they might actually learn something. I love it. I love it. Um, I, two things. I love the uh, professional amateur concept. It's it's kind of kind of a kind of an oxymoron, but I, I think the thing to me that that emphasizes is the the joy of learning, right? Because if you stop learning and, and your focus is on being a professional and and either teaching or just being a master at something, that sometimes the the impulse to learn is maybe put on the back burner, and that's something that 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 term professional amateur really keeps at the forefront. So first of all, that's great. And then also the three C's, the create, communicate, and connect. Correct. Yeah. Are, are those things that you kind of use as the core values of the of the, the Wolf's Cocktail blog? Or is it, it, it's a blog, is, correct? It, it, it is a blog, and yes, they are really the, the core values. And I guess, you know, I, I have a thing for words that start with the letter C. You know, for example, cocktails. So it's uh, always a, it is a lot of fun. And that's really the key thing is the fun. Because my impression is that sometimes people get so wrapped up in the details, and I've seen it, I believe that is I've met people both in the industry and not in the industry that they get so wrapped up in the details that they lose sight of having fun with it. And that's really the key. You can have so much fun whether you're making a drink for yourself, whether you're making a cocktail for other people. Uh, you know, to me, a lot of the fun is not just creating the cocktails and perhaps imbibing one or two myself or maybe a little more. We don't need to get into that. But I have a lot of fun when I'm able to teach people about a cocktail 
whether it's you know something that they didn't know or they'd heard about but never tried before. Because I, I you know I some of the cocktails in the den are original creations of mine. Most are not. One of the great things about cocktails is that you have all manners of variations on a theme. You know, for example, one of the things that we have here in front of us is a classic, classic cocktail, the Manhattan. Everybody knows it, or at least I believe everybody knows it. Anyone who knows anything about cocktails or is even remotely familiar with cocktails is familiar with a Manhattan. Fundamentally, it's a very simple drink. Three ingredients, bourbon or rye. Uh, traditionally, it was rye. These days, most people are going to use bourbon as the base spirit, which is fine. And we can, if you want, we can talk a little later just very briefly about the difference between bourbon and rye. So that's the first ingredient. Your second ingredient is sweet vermouth or red vermouth, if you will. And the third are your bitters. And, you know, you'll find that a lot of cocktails really at, at their base only have three or four ingredients. And that makes it a lot easier for professional amateurs such as myself, uh, because then you don't have to memorize a laundry list of ingredients. Or if you can't memorize it, thank God we have the internet. Right. You can look it all up. Right. Uh, well, I, I think that the choice to, to have the Manhattan variations in front of us today was a really smart choice, and I was behind it from the very get-go. So thanks for, first of all, putting these together while I was setting up all of this crazy audio equipment today. And I think this is a good segue into our topic for today. Um, it, it is sort of like an, a, a bit of a educational episode, or maybe we'll even call it a foundational episode here, um, because what we're going to be talking about today is the quote-unquote supporting cast in cocktails. And what I mean by that is that usually when people think about cocktails, they think about spirits, which makes sense because, you know, sort of spirits are the, the action element in the cocktail. They're the energy, the alcohol, the thing that generates the change in your physiology and, and your mood. But when we're talking about cocktails, we're also talking about balance. Balance is one of these things that we, we keep coming back to. And the ingredients that we're going to talk about today, namely bitters, vermouths, and various liqueurs, are the supporting cast that comes in and generates that balance or helps to generate that balance, maybe along with some citrus in, 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 or acid in, in many situations. So what I'd like to do is maybe, Josh, maybe we can tag team this. Would it be possible for you to speak briefly about the differences, the high-level differences between bitters, vermouths, and liqueurs just for a moment? Sure. Vermouths, at their most fundamental, vermouths are fortified, infused wine. Really, there are two types, either the white, which tends to be paler, obviously, drier, or the red, which tends to be a little sweeter. For a little bit of a history thing, the word vermouth is actually a French word, and it is the French pronunciation of vermouth, which is a German word for wormwood. Historically, dating back to the Middle Ages, a lot of wine was infused with various botanicals, such as wormwood, for their purported medicinal purposes. But at its base, vermouth is fortified infused wine. When I say fortified, that means it's there's a little bit of alcohol added, a grain neutral spirit, and it's infused with botanicals, whether it's roots, herbs, things like that. Key thing though about vermouth that a lot of people did, don't know, and frankly I didn't know this for many, many years, 
vermouth is a wine. So once you open the bottle, either use it or put it in the fridge. Because if you've ever had a bottle of wine that hasn't been put in the fridge, it skunks and it's pretty god awful. And we've probably all had a martini or a Manhattan at some point with vermouth that is skunked. Because a lot of times what happens? Bartender will open the vermouth, they'll put it back in the bar like they would any other spirit. And frankly, if it was any other spirit, you don't have a problem with that. With vermouth, uh, the results are going to be, well, I wouldn't say catastrophic, but you're not going to get the cocktail you want out of that. We might we might call them cringeworthy. Uh, you can certainly still finish that cocktail, but it's, it's going to be a chore. Uh, one thing I will uh, mention on the vermouths front is that the you mentioned the herbs and barks and you know maybe roots that these are these are infused with so really besides the you know white versus red and there are certain shades within that as well that we can maybe uh talk about if we have a specific vermouth episode down the road but it's those herbs and roots and barks that are used in the infusion that is the secret sauce if you will in a given company's vermouth so if you if you have two bottles in the store of white vermouth that's sometimes called blanc vermouth what's going to be different is maybe the grapes that are used and then also the uh, different emphases and levels of certain herbs and aromatic components and it's interesting uh, because most vermouths come from france and italy traditionally the region where vermouth comes from is now essentially southeastern france and northwestern italy as i mentioned before Many, many centuries ago, vermouth was used for medicinal purposes, primarily. It evolved over time, and in fact, it wasn't until, I believe, the 19th century when in Italy, and I believe it was in Turin, where uh, a fellow named Carpano, he was the one who started using the vermouth not as medicine, but in cocktails. And vermouth is a critical component of martinis, uh, it is a critical component in Manhattans. Uh, other drinks that you may have heard of, such as a Negroni, which is a gin, uh, Campari, which is an Amaro liqueur. We'll be talking about that later in the episode. And sweet vermouth. Or if you don't like gin, take out the gin and put in whiskey. I personally prefer using bourbon. You have what is known as a Boulevardier. Uh, the recipe, by the way, for the Boulevardier is on my blog, which is www.wolfcocktailden.com. And remember, that's wolf with a U, not an O. Yeah, and we'll definitely be uh, linking to that in the show notes, folks. So uh, you should have no problem getting to the den. So yeah, we actually have a couple of vermouths in front of us, and, and I am a big fan of tasting notes. I know that some people might not have the same uh, relationship to uh, the words that describe flavor as I do, uh, and, and I was actually once one of those people. I remember when I took my uh, first wine and spirits education course, people would come out with these tasting notes like dried prune or something like that and I would just want to like flip the table and walk out because I couldn't get that but when you spend more time around something and actually you know kind of think deeply as you taste which is I think maybe a common goal between modern bar cart and the wool cocktail then is kind of thinking deeply and, and being engaged with what you're making and what you're tasting then you start to actually pull out those notes so hopefully we won't get too many eye rolls at this but uh, do you want to start with the red vermouth that we have in front of us sure but before we do that if it's any consolation 
I'm not at the point where Eric is in terms of tasting notes. Uh, fundamentally, do you like it or not? There's nothing wrong with it if you don't like something. Uh, there's a, I wouldn't say it's a problem, but there's a tendency by some people to think that, oh, well, it's a vermouth from X place, so it must be good. Or it's a vermouth that costs $40 a bottle, so it must be great. Or conversely, it's a vermouth that costs $7 a bottle, so it must be crap. Well, that's just not, not true. You find what you like, be daring, be strong, and be courageous to try different things because you never know. Uh, you will make some wonderful discoveries. My wife and I have had the good fortune to travel around the United States and, and to various parts of the world. And we always try to drink local, at least try the local stuff. Now, we've had some fantastic experiences. Uh, just as an example, when we were in Thailand a few years ago, we had uh, a Mekong whiskey. It's fantastic. I'm probably still the only, every, uh, the only American who's ever ordered this stuff at a particular hotel bar in Bangkok. Now, there have been other instances where it didn't quite work out. For example, the Turkish beer I had once was pretty god-awful. I had two sips and couldn't finish it, but you never know. But we, as Eric was mentioning, we do have two vermouths in front of us. Yeah, so this is, we're, we're going to taste a couple uh, before we get to the cocktails where we've done, um, you know, variations on a Manhattan. I have these two that I picked up recently. One is a local vermouth from Washington, D.C., which is where uh, Modern Bar Cart is based. Um, and it's called Capitoline Vermouth. And they operate out of the Green Hat Gin Distillery, at least as of the um, taping of this episode. And it's a very robust red sweet vermouth it's called i believe a, uh, a rosé is how it's labeled on the mm. on the label but it's closest to just your standard red sweet vermouth so okay. let's try this cheers cheers now as we taste this i was um i actually tasted this in the liquor store first uh, before purchasing it and and the way it was described to me is it, it had an emphasis on cooking spice which isn't something that you always see in Sweet vermouth. What, what, what do you usually get um, when you taste a, a sweet vermouth? Like, what are some of the notes that you look for or assume are probably going to be there? Well, actually, I will assume it's it's sort of like a a robust red wine. Got a lot going on. You know, the spices, maybe a little bit of tannin, various fruits. You know, perhaps cherry, something like that. Something that you're going to know it's there. You may not necessarily know what it is and it will be vaguely familiar, mm -hmm. but you'll definitely know it's there. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think one of the things that I look for is a slight bit of bitterness. But again, when these when these wines are fortified, there's again, there's more alcohol and sometimes there's a little bit more sugar in there mm -hmm. as well. So the bitterness you're not going to get as, as strongly as you will with bitters, which we'll talk about in just a minute here. Uh, the other things that I'm noticing with this particular vermouth, the Capitoline Rosé, uh, getting some cinnamon for sure. And I'm also getting some sweet cooking herbs, almost like uh, maybe a, a marjoram or a tarragon or something. So it's a pretty mild, uh, maybe a touch of bay leaf in there. But again, that's that's pretty subjective. You know, you could right. walk up to this and taste something completely different. So that's just what I'm getting. And, and, and frankly, it, like with any other cocktail or wine or frankly, anything you're drinking, if you are eating something with it, that's going to change things. There, there's absolutely no doubt about that, that say the variations on the Manhattan that we have prepared, I can guarantee you that they will taste completely different if you're having them, say, with uh, marinara sauce or a medium rare steak. 
Right. And there's a whole art to pairing food and drink, not just cocktails, right. but also wine and, and beer. Right. So very, very good point. Right. Um, but just, but again, don't be locked into whatever the tradition might be. I mean, I'm not old enough to remember this, but say when my you know parents were coming of age and certainly my grandparents did, it was considered a major faux pas to have red wine with fish. I happen to like fish. I happen to like red wine. Well, I put them together. Same thing with cocktails. There's no right or wrong way to do it. I think it's helpful when you have when you're cognizant of the history, you're cognizant of the traditions, but you don't necessarily want to be locked into that. And right. One of the nice things I think we're seeing in the, in certainly the United States and frankly globally is that you have people who are willing to experiment. Do you know because as you know the vermouths and the bitters, particularly with the bitters, which we'll get to in a moment, you switch out one bitter and you put in a, a different bitter, that can radically change the drink. And frankly, I feel bad for vermouths and bitters be, and to, to a lesser extent, of course, but particularly the vermouths and the bitters, because to me, they're the unsung heroes of the cocktail world. I mean, really, in my mind, their mission statement, if they had one, you know, if all the vermouths and all the bitters got together with a mission statement, it would be to be the unsung hero who pulls the cocktail together. It's that little detail that you might not really be aware of. It's not going to hit you up front because, you know, most cocktails, of course, you're going to, your base spirit is going to be the predominant one. You know, for example, in a, in a martini, whether it's vodka or gin, depending on how you like them, you're going to have at least 50% of that drink's going to be your, your base spirit. But it's the little things. It's those little details that you might not quite know why the drink has come together the way it has, but I can almost guarantee you it's not because of whatever that base spirit is. Right. And uh, I, I couldn't agree more. That's very well said. The bitters and, and vermouths in particular are the unsung heroes, I think. And they're, it, it's a subtle touch. You know, you don't have to you don't have to go in and make a bunch of changes to a cocktail to, to put your own personal signature on it. Um, and I, I think that subtlety is, is some of where the pleasure comes from, just knowing that because you went out of your way to select this bitters or this vermouth that you really like it kind of adds that little extra pleasure to the cocktail because there was that intention behind it so let's let's quickly uh get this other dry vermouth which is from california i believe it's it's via v-y-a or via it is a nice spicy dry vermouth it's it's got a lot of body to me uh, and sometimes uh, dry vermouths can be a little bit thinner. I think by, by their by their nature, they're a little bit less in your face than sweet vermouths. But this actually has a, a nice little kick to it. Well, actually, to me, it, it does have a nice little kick to it, but not being overpowering because I've had some dry vermouths straight that probably you could run my car off of it. Sure, yeah, they do, if, if, and especially, again, so like if you let the, the sweet vermouth sit out, it's gonna oxidize and, and that's gonna be pretty gross. And when you let the dry vermouth sit out, the oxidative, the, the oxidation feature that comes out is paint thinner or nail right. polish remover. And, and, and I suspect that may be a large part of the reason, when, particularly when it comes to martinis, when you know people will order them dry or extra dry. Let me tell you something, people. If you're ordering an extra dry martini, that is just a fancy masquerade for saying, give me a bunch of ice cold vodka or ice cold gin. 
Right. That's what an extra dry martini is. And their legend has it that the Winston Churchill, the former prime minister of, of, of Britain, you know, his idea of an ideal martini was to drink a healthy amount of gin while looking at the bottle of vermouth. Mm-hmm. So, yep. uh, I've it, also heard wave, wave the bottle of vermouth in the general direction of the exactly, cocktail glass. Yes. Exactly, exactly. And, and again, a lot of it depends on not just the vermouth you're using, but say with a martini, the proportions. Some people really try to emphasize the vermouth, and that's fine. Some people want to emphasize the vodka more or, or the gin. I, I, I apologize because for many years I was not that keen on gin, and it's only been within the last year or two when I've started to get a little more into gin. But uh, perhaps it's because my ancestors came from the part of Eastern Europe, which would now be Lithuania, uh, Minsk, excuse me, uh, Belarus, and Russia. I like to say I'm genetically hardwired to like vodka, but that's just really an excuse. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. Polish ancestry here. So, you know, I think there's a war between Poland and, and Russia over who, who actually invented it. But Oh, there is. And, and, and vodka actually means uh, little water. It, it's in, in, in Russian. I, I don't know what the it means in the, in the Polish language, but if you ever want to get your ass kicked, tell some Polish people that the Russians invented vodka and vice versa. <laughs> right. Um, before we move on, I wanted to just, uh, we, we have a couple recipe opportunities here. Uh, we were just talking about the martini and the Manhattan. And these these are two cocktails that I think are the epitome of like a vermouth and a spirit and a bitters. So <clears throat> I'll mention just the brief, you know, and, and if I, I screw anything up with these recipes, please correct me or get, add nuance. But to me, a classic martini is going to be gin based and it's going to be two ounces of gin, a half ounce of dry vermouth and a couple dashes of bitters. And then you're going to want to, generally speaking, do a, an expressed lemon peel garnish and you can either leave it in the glass or discard it. Now there are Again, many variations. There's the dirty martini with olive juice, but that to me is the classic gin martini. And then the classic Manhattan recipe is two ounces of rye, one ounce, I believe, of sweet vermouth. It's a two to one ratio. Uh, it all depends. Uh, frankly, when I do it, I use a two and a half to one ratio. Okay. I, I traditionally prefer to make my Manhattans with bourbon, even though I love rye and I think it's great that rye is making such a comeback. One of the things about both martinis and uh, Manhattans is that contrary to my favorite British secret agent ever, both drinks you're actually supposed to stir. You're not supposed to shake a martini, technically. Frankly, I've had shaken martinis, I've had stirred martinis. I don't think it makes much of a difference to me personally. Uh, It's sort of an interesting story about James Bond, the character, and you'll have to pardon me, Eric, for this tangent, because besides cocktails, one of my other passions involves, you know, the James Bond franchise. Oh, I'm, I'm a big Bond fan, yeah. so please. Well, there were two things about the way James Bond drank martinis. It was very deliberate what Ian Fleming did. One was he called for vodka, not gin. James Bond, the character, is a product of the upper crust British society. And at the time, all martinis use gin, not vodka. And the second, that was, so that's the first way that Bond was a contrarian, if you will. The second way in which he was a contrarian, and we all know how he likes his martinis, shaken, not stirred. Mm-hmm. For those of you who may not know this already, 
you generally only shake drinks if they have in a cocktail if it calls for citrus or egg white and that's it anything else you stir you can shake a Manhattan you know it's not like you're gonna get struck down by the cocktail gods if you if you shake one but you don't have to I generally do not I what's what I call the Hamlet cocktail conundrum you know to stir to shake that is the question well the answer is if it's citrus or egg white shake it if it is not stir it um just the last ingredient of the manhattan before we before we move on is you know so you're going to do your bourbon or rye you're going to do your roughly a half of that amount of sweet vermouth whether you're doing a two to one or a two and a half to one ounce measure and then you're going to top it off with orange bitters and there's a couple different brands out there we'll do a couple shout outs in a second here and then you want to garnish that with uh an orange peel so in the same way that you're going to express and when i say express basically you take the peel you take a little a vegetable peeler size peel off of the citrus fruit and then you just squeeze it right over the finished cocktail in its glass and maybe you know wipe it around the rim to get some of the essential oils on the rim so you can smell them nicely and then you either leave it in the glass or you can simply discard it because really it's the oil that's doing the job there so and if you want to use a cherry in the manhattan please 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 use something like a luxardo cocktail cherry don't use the maraschino cherries to me they are just frankenfruits uh toxic little monstrosities that they look great but they're not actually to me they don't add much right and they'll turn the cocktail i think a little too sweet sure Sure. Um, and yeah, they, they might look nice uh, in that sort of iridescent red, but it's it's a little bit it's a little bit scary if you read the label. So we'll leave it at that. Shall we talk about some bitters? Sure. Bitters, the way I like to think of bitters is that they are concentrated flavor stimulants. If you think about, say, in cooking, you have your spices. Your bitters are the cocktail equivalent of spices. Historically, again, they were used for medicinal purposes. They are extracts from botanicals, plants, herbs, roots, things like that. Uh, And you'll notice a a theme here that Eric and I are discussing, you know, the, the medicinal background. And just to let you all know, it's not just the cocktail world where it has history, uh, where the original purpose behind a commercial product was medicinal. I'll give you a great example, something that every American and frankly everybody around the world knows. This is not in the cocktail world. Coca-Cola. Most people don't think about it, may not even know it. The coca in Coca-Cola is the coca leaf. In other words, cocaine. There was So yes, there was cocaine in Coca-Cola, or at least coca leaf extract in Coca-Cola until I believe it was right before World War One. So it's not just the cocktail world where you have the the medicinal background, if you will. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, even within the cocktail world itself, I mean, what counts? Uh, what counted? I should say, as medicine, a few generations ago. Not even. Not even out of out of memory. You could ask, you know, your your grandparents if they're still around, and I'm sure that they would be able to tell you some pretty interesting stories about what passed for medicine in their day. And, uh, you know, going back just maybe three generations back to the time when a lot of classic three to four, three to five generations uh, is when, you know, roughly all these classic cocktails were invented. Back then, the landscape was a lot different. 
during prohibition, for example, you could get a prescription for whiskey, which is how some of those companies stayed around. And are you familiar, Josh, with the uh, Peychaud's story? I mean, maybe having been to New Orleans? Uh, very vaguely. Uh, Peychaud's bitters are, are bitters you can pretty much find in any liquor uh, store in the country. Antoine Peychaud was a pharmacist in the wonderfully unique American city of New Orleans. And he created the bitters, and the Peychaud's bitters are a key component in the Sazerac cocktail, which quite seriously is the official cocktail of the city of New Orleans. I believe as, as legend has it, Peychaud being a pharmacist, he used to serve his medicinal concoctions in what little egg cups. And there's a theory out there, and frankly, I have no idea whether it's true or not. Eric, you might be able to shed some light on this, that the word cocktail comes from the French word coquier, which was, I believe, an expression for an egg cup. Now, there's one flaw that I'm aware of with this story, with that theory, that the word cocktail, at least the, fir the first known use of the word cocktail, at least in the United States, uh, came in a, a newspaper that I believe was in New York in 1806, which is well before Antoine Peychaud, I believe, was plying his trade down in New Orleans. Sadly, I know a lot about this. It was actually a newspaper in New Hampshire, I believe, Amherst, New Hampshire, and David Wondrich. And there, there's, nothing, a, there's nothing sad about that. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, uh, I've been dabbling for, for another episode I'm working on here since uh, what we're trying to do is launch a bunch of episodes here together so that folks can actually binge on it when we launch. Uh, I'm, I'm doing some history background research, and, and we'll, we'll leave it at this. David Wondrich is an excellent cocktail author, and he not only covers the history of of cocktails in America, but also does a little bit of really good text-based research coming from the the academy as he does. Um, so he does a really good job digging into it. So if you want to learn about the origins of the word cocktail and some of the, the interesting historical applications, definitely check out Wondrich. That is W-O-N-D-R-I-C-H. He's And he's always a, a fixture at Tales of the Cocktail down in New Orleans. Uh, yeah. I, was, I was lucky enough to attend a seminar with him in it last year, and that was a riot. For those of you who don't know, he's pretty much the rock star or one of the rock stars in the cocktail world. Yes. Yeah. And uh, and, and for, for good reason. So definitely check him out. And, and the publication that he's most famous for is called Imbibe with an exclamation mark after it. But let's jump in now, uh, since we've got some bitters on the table here, let's take uh, just a, a taste around these bitters. The, the, all the bitters come from the Embitterment Company. And full disclosure, this is, this is, this is my company. Embitterment was the cocktail bitters company that I started back in 2014 with some, some friends. And we are now, of course, rebranding and expanding to modern bar cart. But this is the sort of the line that started it all. So I'll, I'll talk us through what bitters we have here in front of us. Uh, we have an aromatic bitters. And, and anytime you see cocktail bitters described as aromatic, what it means is sort of kitchen sink. It means there's a bunch of stuff in there that tastes spicy and dark and deep. Generally, this would kind of be what you pair up with a red or sweet vermouth and whiskey generally. Absolutely whiskey. I, I would, if you want to use aromatic bitters in a cocktail that is based in a clear liquor, for example, gin, vodka, a younger tequila, I'd be very, very careful about how much you, you put in. 
it can certainly be done, but but you're right. You want to be a, a lot more careful with how you incorporate that. So our aromatic bitters, the, the embitterment aromatic bitters, which you can purchase on modernbarcart.com, are a Creole style, uh, just like Peychaud's bitters, actually. And what that means is uh, they emphasize flavors that are kind of in the star anise, cinnamon, clove spectrum. So they're they're dark, deep, and and a little bit licorice-y. Really, the only difference between uh, embitterment aromatic bitters and Peychaud's bitters is that Peychaud's is sweetened and it is uh, dyed using, I think I read on the bottle here, they use red dye number 40, although they may be switching to a more natural-based dye soon. And then besides that, the flavor profile is very similar. It's really good in New Orleans cocktails like the Sazerac, for example, which is basically just an old-fashioned with absinthe, um, and we'll definitely you know, be talking about the Sazerac in, in other episodes here. And the, the one thing that is kind of odd is that we haven't started with the giant in the room, uh, which is Angostura bitters. And, and Angostura is another example of the medicinal history of bitters. The Angostura, the House of Angostura is the, the group behind it. And the doctor's name escapes me. I believe it's Siegert. Was the name of the uh, doctor? Yeah, WJSB or WWBJS or Siegert. Yeah, Some, something like that. He was a, a doctor back in in Venezuela. Well, well, he he was not Venezuelan himself, but he uh, was uh, had been hired by uh, Simon Bolivar, who was the freedom fighter in. Correct me if I'm wrong, the 19th century, early 19th century. Yeah, I think he was active in a number of countries down in Central and South America. And and what the doctor did was he harvested a lot of the local plants, herbs, things like that, created what ultimately became Angostura bitters. Angostura was no longer, well, really never was in Venezuela. It's where it started. It relocated to Trinidad and Tobago, which is where it still is today. One thing about Angostura bitters, or frankly any bitters, is that they are technically considered non-potable, which means you, you don't drink them. That is not to say you cannot drink them. Frankly, I have absolutely no idea why you would want to chug one of these bottles of bitters, but they are non-potable, which is why they come in, you will see all bitters come in very small bottles with the, um, some of them, not not the embitterment products you have in front of us, but say like with Angostura, they have sort of what looks to me like very small mini rolls of butcher paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and there are potable bitters, uh, Amadi, which we will discuss those later in the episode. But right now we're talking about non-potable bitters. Right. And Angostura is primarily an aromatic bitter. Um, so they're, they're not a Creole style. So if the, the, where I see aromatic bitters sort of branching off in two directions is that you have the Creole style and the non-Creole style. Creole style having that kind of licorice um, cinnamony characteristic. And then Angostura is a little bit deeper and more herbal, I would say, and different bitters for different cocktails, right? Uh, So this is one of those situations where if you're making a cocktail and you have the opportunity to use one of a number of different whiskeys and one of a number of different bitters, you can select your base spirit and then based on the selection of that base spirit, make kind of an informed decision based on what you know about the bitters about which one you would like to pair with it. And and that's also a, 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 it's frankly a fun way to experiment. I have spent probably far too many an evening, going, oh, well, what would happen if I used this bitter instead of that bitter? Uh, I would suggest when you do this, when you have these little fun experiments, don't make full-size drinks. 
keep the proportions the same as, as you prefer, but make mini drinks because you don't want to run out of an entire bottle of bourbon, rye, or whatever, because you got a little bit too into it. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a really, really good point. But again, very good, very good opportunity to experiment simply by changing one ingredient, your aromatic bitters, whether you're using embitterment or Peychaud's or Angostura, any number of there's a ton of aromatic bitters out there. It's a cool way to, to, to learn more about your own preferences and what goes well together in terms of spirits and bitters. The other bitters on the table, I'll just mention a little bit more briefly here. They're all from Embitterment, but I will throw out a few extra brands uh, with each different style. Uh, we have a nice Embitterment orange bitters here, and the go-to is usually uh, usually Regan's, or I believe uh, Angostura also has an orange, as does Fee Brothers. Um, those are three really big brands out there. Definitely worth e experimenting with. I can I can tell you that, that what the Embitterment brand does a little bit differently is Again, we don't sweeten like Angostura, like Regan's, and we don't use any artificial dyes or, or coloring. So the, the orange color that you're seeing in the aromatic, uh, sorry, the, the orange bitters is actually just the essential orange oils. We also have a lavender bitters, which is lovely. Um, it's really good with gin drinks or vodka drinks, really any clear spirit. Uh, I've used it effectively with white rum. I've used it effectively with Blanco tequila. I made a really nice take on the aviation uh, using limoncello, white rum, and our lavender bitters and kind of switching out all the traditional ingredients of that cocktail, and it was great. And then we also have a chocolate bitters, which is made with really good organic cacao shells and all of our bitters are actually USDA organic certified, uh, which is a new development, which is which is really nice. We've always used organic ingredients, but it's a paperwork intensive process. And so we started it a while ago and it has finally come through. So we're happy to be able to put that trust symbol on our labels. But we've been talking about martinis and Manhattans, and we've got these lovely. You 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 were kind enough to pre-batch some Manhattans, and I've been staring at them. So can we maybe uh, get into these? And I'll let you take the lead and tell tell folks what we're tasting, maybe the method that we that we used, and um, and we'll we'll taste them and talk. And, and I must say that that even though who, if you're listening to this, you can't see this. You, sh you if you could see this, you would commend. Eric, and you would commend me for our restraint and our discipline, because we've been sitting here this entire time looking at six mini Manhattans. Oh, man. And so what we did here was we used one bourbon for all six uh, mini Manhattans. I, I used bullet bourbon. That's uh, B-U-L-L-E-I-T. Yes. So Eric and I each have six glasses in front of us. All six have bullet bourbon. Three of each set of six... Uh, has one type of vermouth, and that's uh, a French vermouth, Driaud, which is spelled D-R-I-L-L-A-U-D. Quite frankly, this is a vermouth that I only discovered a couple of months ago. It is a, a sweet vermouth. The other vermouth we're using is, frankly, my favorite uh, of the sweet vermouths, Carpano Antica. As the name would indicate, it is from Italy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Carpano is, uh, man, it is, it's a work of art. It is, it is one of those that, that I would totally just drink on its own, either on the rocks or just as it, chilled. Actually, frankly, it's great on its own, chilled with a little bit of orange peel. It oh, is, it lovely. Is, it is absolutely fantastic. Now, I will tell you that at least wherever I've seen it sold, Carpano Antica is probably going to be the priciest sweet vermouth out there. And there are times when paying 
more for a bottle may not be worth it. This is one of those times where I think it is. Uh, there's, I believe, an excellent article, Eric, that you wrote, the Drinkonomics article. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, about that if you think about it, that you may go, oh my God, I'm not going, well, I'll use Carpano. I, I think it retails for about $35 a bottle. And you look at a lot of other vermouths out there and there may be a third of that price at, at the most. And you go, well, is it really worth it? Well, let's just say you really like Manhattans. You can get an awful lot of Manhattans out of one bottle of Carpano at Antica. So is that really a place where you want to cut corners? I would submit you don't want to. Right. And, and often, I mean, this is this may be getting into the weeds, but Carpano is often um, is sold in a liter bottle as opposed to a 750 ml. So that's a little bit of added price there as well. So technically per ounce or per milliliter, you're, it's, it's more reasonable than it might seem next to the other 750 mLs. And uh, to your point about, you know, like how many Manhattans can you get? Yes. Remember, folks, we're talking about the supporting cast. So whereas you're going to be using usually one and a half to two and a half ounces of a base spirit, you're going to be using anywhere from a half ounce to an ounce rarely ever more than that of a vermouth or a liqueur which we'll get to we'll we'll maybe transition into some some discussion about liqueur as we as we get to uh satisfy our our manhattan craving exactly so which which one do we want to try first the triodes or the antica uh let's let's start with the one that we know um i am not i you you gave me a little uh taste of the triodes which was delicious uh before we started producing let's start with the carpano all right and and just so we know that who can explain to everyone listening that each one of us has, again, the six glasses, all has the same bourbon, bullet. Three of the six have Duryodes, three of the six have Carpano Antica. But with each of the three, one of each uh, subset of three has uh, orange bitters. Another one has the aromatic bitters. And the third one, I believe, is the chocolate. Yes. Exactly. Yep. All right. Yeah. And so orange is obviously the, the classic. And then aromatic right. would be sort of another acceptable thing that if you saw that, you know, maybe in a restaurant somewhere they had aromatic bitters in their Manhattan, that doesn't need to be a red flag for you. And then the chocolate is is definitely a sort of a departure from the tradition, but it's I, it's something that I really enjoy and I think it works well in this, in this situation. So and, let's start. And particularly well with dessert or sweeter things. Absolutely. So we will start, I believe, with the traditional Carpano Antica. Yes. Cheers. Cheers. Clink. Mm. That is delicious. I really, one of the things that I really like about Carpano Antica as a sweet vermouth is the acidity in it. And, and I'd like to have, uh, I'm planning on having at least one episode where we talk about taste and flavor and the components of, of everything that goes into a flavor experience, which is more complicated than you would think it is. Acidity in a cocktail is actually a really important one. Uh, we mentioned citrus juice earlier, which is you know one of the things that, that is used to balance out some of the roughness of the spirits back in the day. Um, and it is still one of those five primary tastes. But the acidity of the Carpano Antica, I think, is what makes it unique. Some of the other vermouths out there, especially the Frencher ones, are a little bit more gentle. What I think the Carpano Antica does is it balances that acidity with a really nuanced blend of botanicals and, and spices that I can't even begin to pull apart. And that's part of the magic is that it's, you can't, you really can't highlight too, too many individual notes. It's just the Carpano Antica blend. And it has a little bit of a kick, but not so much that it will overpower the Manhattan. It's got that, I don't know how they do it, but man, they just really have that nice balance that, you know, it's, you know, it's there. But it, but it, it doesn't overshadow 
well, in this case, the bourbon. Right. And and one of the things that I'm getting here is you can certainly tell that this is a bourbon Manhattan because it has that really mellow finish, whereas a, a rye Manhattan is generally going to be, it's going to finish on the spicier side mm -hmm. and the finish isn't going to linger as long. Remember, bourbon or rye in a Manhattan, both are fine. Don't be a cocktail snob. Exactly. You don't want to be that guy or that lady who becomes the cocktail snob. You know, if you know what you like, great. You know, if it's not if it's not your speed, that's fine. Some people will insist that, oh, well, you know, it, it can't be a Manhattan unless it has rye. That's not true. It can be. Uh, now, again, you know, historically, drinks have evolved over time. A drink, Eric, you mentioned earlier, the Sazerac, mm -hmm. using Peychaud's bitters. Today, most people make it with rye. At least that's the way I make mine. Yep. But when it was first made, it was cognac. Correct. Yep. Um, and actually, I, I would uh, suggest that if you're into Sazeracs, I have the recipe for the current one on, on the Den's website. I also have what I call the Vieux Nouveau Sazerac, which frankly sounds a lot better than Old New, which is mm -hmm. using half cognac, half rye. And, and, it, and it's very, very nice. But again, don't be uh, afraid to experiment and try things out. So I'm sorry, did we want to try the Driodes? Yeah, now I, I'd with... love to try the, the Driodes. I, I, right. I, I've been smelling it here and you can you can tell, you don't even have to taste the, the, the difference. You can just, man, you can smell it. And it's got this, it's uh, what I can only really describe as a wonderful grapiness to it. Um, I feel like there's there's definitely different grapes at play here. And, and I'm going to have to go and look up what grapes these folks use versus the, the Carpano Antica. But, you know, one of the things that if you, if you study wine at all is that these different regions in France and Italy are going to be using oftentimes different types of grapes. And that's going to make a big difference in the vermouth. Okay. And... For those of you who are less, well, I guess, aromatically and technically in inclined than Eric, in other words, if you're like me, the, the Driodes, it's a little smoother. It's definitely there, but it's not, to me, quite as assertive as Carpano Antica, personally. They're both great in a Manhattan, and you're not going to go wrong with either. It's just sort of a question of what sort of, a, I guess, a flavor profile you like or don't like. Imagine Carpano Antica in, in this situation as like, think you think of maybe sitting in a jazz lounge and you hear somebody soloing on a saxophone, you know, it's just a really beautiful, smooth sax solo. That to me is Carpano Antica, whereas the Driodes is more like a really nice bass line that's always there. It's, you know, somebody just kind of plucking away at the bass. Um, it, it's, it's more, I think it's more constant throughout the different phases of the, the taste than the Carpano Antica. It's there at the beginning, it's there in the middle, and it's there at the end, but it is definitely a lot more restrained. So that's that's really fun. And the orange bitters here, I think, are, are complementary of both the vermouths, I think. I don't think there's any clashing going on here. And uh, personally, I'm a big fan of well, the flavor orange, but particularly orange bitters because of their versatility. And when you are purchasing products for your home bar or the modern bar cart, if you will. Versatility is something that you want to look for. Ideally, I mean, unless you have a bazillion dollars, you know, you're looking for versatility. So not just with your uh, liquors, your liqueurs, your vermouths and your, uh, and your bitters, but try to buy things that you might be able to use in more than one drink. Sure. 
So let's get through these other tastings and move on to, to he, liqueurs. He makes it sound like such a chore. Get through these other tastings. Well, well <laughs> it's gonna take us. It's gonna take us a little while. And and I know that the liqueurs is it, when it comes to rabbit holes. I think liqueurs is I, personally it's it's my own it's my own area where I can sit there and just talk for hours about chartreuse or Campari. Right. So, but, but let's. I guess I, I'm a big believer in building blocks and laying the foundation for things. Liqueur is not the same thing as liquor. Liqueur it is it is not like the word liqueur is some fancy French word for liquor. Liqueur is a distilled spirit to which you add or mix other ingredients uh, with sugar and other flavors. Generally, liqueurs are sweeter than liquors, the distilled spirits from which they come. Right. I would say almost exclusively, I can't think of an exception uh, unless somebody is playing fast and loose and trying to trying to do something uh, edgy. Right. Yeah. And, and just keep in mind, though, sweeter doesn't necessarily mean weaker. You have a lot of liqueurs, for example, the Chartreuse. Uh, I'm a big fan of Cointreau. When it comes to the orange liquors, but then again, mm -hmm. I have a thing for orange, Benedictine. The, these are like vermouths, like bitters. A lot of these, uh, say the Benedictine, and I believe Chartreuse as well. They are rooted in medicinal properties. Right. Uh, you know, some of these are going back hundreds of years, at least as legend has it. I believe it's with both Chartreuse and Benedictine. Uh, both came from out of, from uh, monastic orders. Right. And at least my understanding is that at any one time, there's only a handful of monks who actually know the entire recipe. I know. And it's to, to me, I mean, first of all, Chartreuse is my, I think, my favorite liquid in existence and and that's uh, Did you put it in your coffee in the morning uh, probably shouldn't have given me that idea but uh, <laughs> but it's it's produced by the carthusian monks and then uh benedictine is by the, the benedictine monks so yeah these are the you know uh to, to return to a really good point you just made many liqueurs are not as alcoholic as spirits but that doesn't mean that there aren't liqueurs out there that are as alcoholic, if not more alcoholic. So chartreuse, for example, I believe is close to 50% alcohol by volume. And you'll have to pardon my ignorance. I never remember. There, there are two types of chartreuse. There's green and there's yellow. And I never right. remember which one is the more powerful. But you're right. The more powerful one clocks in at close to 100 proof. Yeah. And that's that's green. Green is more powerful. Um, yellow is a little bit more subtle. Um, so it act, I, I think yellow gets used in more cocktails that you would consider mainstream. Well, well I'm sure have a whole episode on chartreuse cocktails once we uh, get more more technical here. And mm. once Eric can get one of those Carthusian monks over here. I know. Well, suffice it to say, with liqueurs, you can get pretty crazy. You can get really uh, into the weeds with different stuff, and I am happy to do so. But the, the point of this episode is to, is to give you a high-level overview. So what we've learned so far is that liqueurs are oftentimes less alcoholic than base spirits, but more alcoholic than uh, vermouths, for example. They, they typically range from anywhere from 30 to 100 proof. Right, right. And with many of them, I'd say many of them probably fall lower between 30 and 40 is where I would I estimate the, the majority fall. Uh, and then those European ones can kind of get up there a little bit. So the other thing I want to point out about liqueurs is that... The sugar content is is important to a cocktail. When you think about a cocktail, you know, you've got your base spirit. And when you look at a cocktail like 
the old fashioned, which is to me like the quintessential cocktail. It is sugar, whiskey, and bitters. So something that is a spirit, something that is sweet, literally a cube of sugar, and something that adds depth. And, and technically, Eric, that is the quintessential definition, old school definition of a cocktail, those three things. Right. So <laughs> when you think about what, uh, you know, what's going on there, how, how, can, how can we apply this to, to other things? Well, the nice thing about liqueurs is that they provide that sweetness. So you don't have to add an external simple syrup or uh, other syrup, which is nice. And then these liqueurs, like the other two things that we've discussed today, like bitters and like vermouths, they have these other flavor components to them, which is great. Mm-hmm. So a couple of cocktails that we've discussed already, the Negroni and the Boulevardier, have a base spirit, either gin or whiskey. And then they have Campari, which is a lovely, lovely liqueur, which we should probably talk a little bit about. We'll talk about the Amari in a moment. Sure. Yeah, right. Let's. We'll, we'll get into that in a moment. But I've been dutifully sipping on, on the second level of our Manhattans, and I've got some comments prepared. By all means, um, fire away. So we've got, again, just reminding you, the base of these Manhattans is bullet bourbon. And... We've got one Manhattan with the Carpano Antica and one Manhattan with the Driards Vermouth. And this middle section that we're tasting right now, we have the Embitterment Aromatic Bitters. So again, the aromatic bitters, as we mentioned earlier, are the classic liquid allspice bitters. The kitchen sink is what I like to call it. It's got everything in there. And the aromatic bitters here definitely complement the Driards in that it has a very similar flavor profile. So, so what I'm getting there is it's just more of itself. It is itself at a higher volume. And then when you pair it with the Carpano Antica, which is, um, as I mentioned earlier, a little bit more acidic, it's got, they're actually heading in opposite directions. The acidity is a light, bright note, whereas the aromatic bitters are a deep, dark note. So they're kind of pulling in separate directions. And Although it's very difficult, especially in a radio program, to provide visual conceptualizations of flavor, that's what's happening for me. It's, it has two different types of flavor pulling in separate directions. So I'll stop there because that's nonsense to probably like 99% of people out there, but that's what I'm getting. So we'll talk about a very special subset of liqueurs right now while we taste through the final tier of our Manhattan flight, which is the bullet bourbon with either Carpano, Antica, or the Driards, and chocolate bitters, the embitterment chocolate bitters. So the liqueurs that I'm going to let Josh take the lead on are Amari, which is the plural for an Italian term called Amaro. And And Amaro literally means bitter. Right. And these liqueurs are indispensable in many, many cocktails. They, they really are. You, you do need them. There's, uh, as we were mentioning earlier, the Negroni, the Boulevardier, they both call for what is probably the uh, Amaro that you are the most familiar with, is, and that's Campari. Mm-hmm. Campari on its own, to me, is absolutely disgusting. I, Interesting. I, I, I cannot stand it on its own. You know what? On its own, it's it's to me, it's overly sweet, and really? it is very bitter. I would not say. I mean, 
let, I mean, come on, I make yeah. bitters. So like, <laughs> so I'm, I'm probably not your type. Most, most, right, right, right. Consider the source people. Most people, most people are going to agree with Josh here, but I, I do agree on its own. You're probably not going to like Campari. It has, um, it's got that kind of cough syrup characteristic if you try it on right. its own. So leave your childhood experiences with cough syrup at the door. I mean, Campari, as the name would suggest, it's obviously from Italy. When you've seen it, it's a very, very dark, I would call it a ruby red. I think ruby, ruby's fair. Okay, ruby's fair. It, it is very strong on its own, not just the taste, but in terms of the alcohol level. It is, and, it's and, up there, yeah. And, and like most Amari, and, and just so we're all clear, Amari is plural of Amaro. At, at any rate, Campari is, is probably the best known of the Amari. Now, the good news is that because of the renaissance with cocktails, both in the United States around the world, you are seeing a greater uh, diversity, if you will, of Amari. Uh, one of my personal favorites is one that's from Sicily called Averna. And uh, to me, I can drink Averna on its own. Sure. All, mm-hmm. all night. Um, I'm, the, one, the one shout out that I'm gonna do here, uh, we'll talk about a few more liqueurs in Amari. But I will shout out to a company called Don Ciccio e Figli, uh, and it's a DC-based Amaro and liqueur maker. And I've had the good fortune of you know knowing the folks who who run this operation. They're exceptional. They have a really great product line, and hopefully, fingers crossed, I'll be able to get somebody from that company on the podcast to talk specifically about Amari. But but luckily, you know what? We're we're in what I'm comfortable calling a renaissance sort of a rebirth of certainly the variety and also the complexity of, of the options out there on the market. So, And really the individuality. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of really great work being done. I mentioned Don Ciccio, uh, but they're certainly, I mean, they're, they're doing excellent work, but they're not alone. There's a lot of other places out there doing great work. So a couple a couple things. One, uh, search out in your local area places where you, act, you can actually like show up at a either a distillery or a place that makes liqueurs or, or bitters and, and, and learn a little bit. That adds a lot to the experience. And the other thing would be to, for folks who are just starting out, Take some of the things that we have talked about in this episode, marinate on it a little bit, go out to your bar and ask questions. Find a bar in your area that serves cocktails and does a good job and ask some questions, be curious. Go out and have conversations about it because that's the best way for you to learn. And luckily, if you go to a bar, the bartenders there have had enough opportunity to make their drinks and, and, and hone their craft that they're going to be able to have like an open conversation. They're not going to look down on you for asking questions. That's the hallmark of a good place and a good person to speak with about cocktails. So and I know Frank, frankly, the good ones love it. Right. It's you, great. When you ask some questions. So before, before we hit the lightning round questions, which are going to happen, I want to do two things. First, I want to talk about the chocolate Manhattan that we've been able to taste through now as, as folks have been listening to us here. And then we need to talk about, in my opinion, what is the, the most important bottle of liqueur to buy for your bar when you're first starting your bar, and that's an orange liqueur. To me, it is. And I'm a big fan, as I mentioned earlier, about Cointreau. Generally, you're going Can to you see, spell that out for us. Yes, C is in Charlie. O I N T R E A U. It is a French liqueur. Uh, it is part of a larger class known as triple sec. It is a an orange liqueur. That is one you're going to see a lot. 
uh, on bars or on menus. Grand Marnier is another one. And yep. you, frankly, you're not going to go wrong with either one. To me, there, as far as I understand it, there are two major differences between Quantico and Grand Marnier. Mm-hmm. A big difference, the first one, is that Cointreau does not use cognac. True. Grand Marnier uses cognac. I have nothing against cognac. Uh, the other difference is the types of oranges they use. One uses more bitter oranges. One uses more sweet oranges. Sure. The reason I prefer Cointreau is that to me it has, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, a cleaner orange taste. In that you can use Cointreau on pretty much anything, any cocktail. Uh, Grand Marnier to me is better suited for cocktails where the base spirit is darker. Yep. You know, a whiskey or, Definitely. A, or a brandy, something like that. I am a huge fan of Cointreau. You know, if it was one of those that, if it was something like some cocktail version of Survivor, and I was only allowed to have one liqueur, I would pick Cointreau. So it's a, no desert, a desert island scenario, if you will. Yeah, and if I had Cointreau, I wouldn't last real long, but we don't need <laughs> to get into that. So. Um, yeah, and, and the nice thing about Cointreau, I, th- I think you, you hit it right on the head, is that it, it is cleaner than Grand Marnier. Now, that being said, my preference, Grand Marnier. It's not a, a better or worse thing. It's just it's a preferential thing. And, and the nice thing is as you have the opportunity to try these things for yourself, you'll start to develop your own preferences. And I do think that Cointreau is generally a little bit less expensive than Grand Marnier, maybe by 5 or $10. Well, frankly, it's, uh, at least to me, it's not the, the differential in the price. It's not enough to say, oh, well, this is so much less expensive, therefore you must get it. Because sure. again, as we were discussing earlier, you know, you think about the value and you know, you're not, you you know, the Grand Marnier, the Cointreau is not the overwhelming, it's not the predominant ingredient in any cocktail you're making. So you're going to get a lot of bang for your buck with either one. Okay. Well then what's, um, so since we're, we're talking a big talk, you're saying that the one, uh, liqueur that you need, if you know, before you get into any Amari, before you get into any of the other liqueurs that we have today, we want you to get a bottle of orange liqueur. If you're just starting to build your home bar or bar cart, Josh, what is your orange liqueur cocktail? Like what is the kind of the, the epitome of orange liqueur cocktail? Well, I must say, I don't have a specific orange liqueur cocktail. I have a lot of cocktails in the den that include Cointreau that you could swap in Grand Marnier and it would be just fine. It would give you a slightly different taste. Sure. Uh, one of the drinks that I've been fond of uh, more recently, at least in the last year, is a derby. It is, okay. a, it is a combination of bourbon, sweet vermouth, Cointreau, and Fresh lime juice. Keyword there being Ooh. fresh. Ooh, that's almost like a bourbon tiki drink. Well, it is awesome. It is fantastic, and I am completely biased, and I'm happy to admit that. Sure. Uh, you're not going to go wrong with that. One of the nice things again about Cointreau is that, at least for me, it will mix well with any cocktail you make that has a dark liquor base or a clear liquor base. At least that is for me. Uh, I, again, you're not going to go wrong with Grand Marnier or any other orange liqueur. Uh, if there isn't enough orange, I would suggest using Embitterment's Orange Bitters, quite ah, frankly. Love it. But again, that's just my own, my own personal preference when it comes to liqueurs. Sure. And, and I think we have two takeaways here. So, folks, if you're just starting to build your home bar or bar cart, 
pick up a bottle of orange liqueur, whether that is Cointreau, Grand Marnier, or even, you know, if you're, if you're trying to keep things really cost effective, there are less expensive triple secs out there. If you're at a liquor store where you have the benefit of having somebody on the floor that you can ask questions to, ask questions of them and see, you know, if, if you're going to go less than those two bottles, which can be a little bit expensive, you try and get somebody to guide you and, and give you, you know, give you something that's a deal without being one of those plastic bottle situations that, that are that generally, <laughs> they generally don't turn out the way you want them to. Like it's the, the cost benefit analysis is rarely works out in your favor. So, so number one, bottle of orange liqueur and number two bottle of orange bitters and it seems like why all right so so logically like if i'm a somebody who knows nothing about building a home bar the question i would have right now is why am i having two orange things on my bar well the reason is because not all cocktails are going to include a liqueur and for those cocktails you're going to want probably some bitters and orange bitters are embitterment's best seller not just because there are good orange bitters that's not sweetened, but the, the nice thing about orange bitters is that you can use them with dark spirits and with clear spirits. So what we're trying to give you here in this episode is not only nerdy etymology things, but also a sense of like, what can I pick up that is going to give me the most bang for my buck? A good orange liqueur, whatever you can afford, and a good bottle of orange bitters are going to give you a lot of flexibility in terms of the cocktails you can start to experiment with. And what's going to happen is if you're a person just starting to build your home bar, those two initial purchases are going to give you so much bang for your buck in terms of experimenting that regardless of whether you purchase those things again or go in a complete different direction, the simple act of experimenting is going to give you the knowledge and the curiosity to bring it to the next level. So well, that, that's why we're advocating that. Well, and quite frankly, it's a hell of a lot of fun to, you know, experiment with things. Uh, one of my, if I may get a little, little bit personal for a moment. Sure. Uh, about three years ago, uh, the longtime cat that my wife and I had, he died. You know, he was 20 when he died. And, you know, I spent an entire day, I believe, in the Wolf Cocktail Den, creating the cocktail that was ultimately known as the Mooch. The Mooch, I love it. Yeah, and well, I, I can, and that is a combination of vodka, finet, branca, and Benedictine. Benedictine being a liqueur, and finet branca being another uh, very popular. Uh, a motto, right? Fernet. I actually brought a bottle of Fernet. I brought some um, some inspiration liqueurs. And I, I I brought my bottle of Fernet. Fernet is probably the most bitter thing you can pick up off of most liquor store yeah. shelves. So um, we're gonna have a whole episode on this later, folks. So don't worry. But Fernet, if you're just starting out, don't buy a bottle of it. Try it at a bar. You're probably if you're new to cocktails, it's gonna be an aversive reaction. It's very very bitter. And that's why those of us who like spirit forward cocktails and tend to maybe drink at a faster rate than we would like to. Um, I will neither confirm nor deny. Right. So right. we tend to like Fernet because of its effect on cocktails that slows you down, complexifies, and makes it, you know, kind of a, a, a more of a, a slow sipping experience. So. And it works very nicely in cocktails. I'm a big fan of it in a, a cocktail such as a Toronto. Uh, but in and of itself, it's it's very very tough. 
Indeed. Uh, and they have different different types. There's Fernet Bronco, which is what we have here. And there's Fernet Broncamenta, which, which is, is, by the way, fantastic. If you want cool. to do a variation on a Toronto. Uh, actually, I was first introduced to a Toronto with a Broncamenta at a bar in Austin, Texas. And can um, you take us through just really quick the Toronto recipe in case folks are interested? I believe, and uh, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, it's rye whiskey, Fernet Bronca or Broncamenta, a little simple syrup. And you take an orange peel, get a match, you flame kiss it, put it in the shaker, stir it all together with some ice. It is a beautiful mm, thing. Mm, sounds lovely. We'll have to get a video of you. We'll, we'll, we'll come back with when we get our hands on some video equipment. We'll do some uh, Wolf Cocktail Den video tutorials for some of this stuff, folks. Oh, no one wants to see that. I think I think everyone wants to see you play with fire, Josh. So um, let's uh, let's comment on our chocolate Manhattans here before we before we transition to the lightning round. Well, obviously, you know, as Eric was saying, you're gonna have a little more of a chocolate flavor. To me, it's a little sweeter, but you know, again, with the chocolate, chocolate, there's a wide variety when it comes to chocolate. Uh, yeah, there are chocolate bitters out there. There's also mole bitters out there. Right. It's a really popular variation on uh, a lot of chocolate bitters out there are chocolate mole. The interesting thing about the embitterment chocolate bitters is that they're an exception in that sense. Uh, we, we are very fortunate to have a source of organic cacao shells that the the quality of those shells is just so incredible that we thought about trying to do something else with it and then when we tested our experiments we were like you know what the best the best version of this is just letting that one ingredient shine and we don't do that in any of our other recipes but we do it in the chocolate bitters and we do have other stuff in that there is some orange peel there is a little bit of really high quality organic vanilla powder in there as well but mostly it's just letting that chocolate shine so if you're not into chocolate mole bitters maybe just try the embitterment chocolate bitters it's cleaner and it's uh, i've gotten some really interesting descriptors over over the the months and i guess it's been over a year since we've launched this product i've gotten liquid tootsie roll uh, really? Um, uh, the reason I say that I'm surprised because uh, chocolate in and of itself, or the cacao bean, is not inherently sweet. But that's one of the nice things that you get the chocolate taste without the sweetness. And uh, to me, when it comes to cocktails, you want a little bit of sweet sometimes, depending on the cocktail, but you don't want too much. And that is where I think a lot of not these bitters, but where certain liqueurs or where certain drinks just go all sorts of wrong. I think there's a lot to be gained by looking at a cocktail that you've made yourself and, and really like just putting the ingredients next to each other. So if you say like, all right, this drink's too sweet. Well, can we deconstruct what's wrong about it? All right, well, I used a spirit. Fine, nothing wrong with the spirit. I used a liqueur. Okay, liqueur's got sweetness in it. It's got flavor in it. I used the bitters. Oh, I used a sweetened Angostura bitters or a Peychaud's bitters, with, which both use sweeteners. Nothing wrong with that. But when you pair those with a liqueur, you've got sweetened on sweetened. So if the drink's too sweet for you, well, maybe that's an indicator that you might want to search out a bitters or you know a bitters that's not using sweetener or a liqueur that's less sweet. There's 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 no right answer, but I, I think sweetness is probably the place where non-spirit ingredients, meaning vermouths and liqueurs, can go farthest off the track. So. As you start out, what's probably going to happen is your taste buds are going to be a little bit 
less experienced with some of the flavors. So that sweetness is going to be a nice shield. It's going to, it's going to be something that helps you get into it because humans are programmed to like sweetness. So that's good. But what's, what will likely happen if you're very new to the bar or bar cart building experience is that as time goes on and as you have experience with these things, the value of sweetness is going to go down. So it's, it's good to play around with that as you're starting out as well, knowing that it's probably going to happen down the road. So at this point, I'm just going to really quickly run down the takeaways that we've gotten from our discussion of bitters, vermouths, and liqueurs. And then we're going to get to the lightning round of questions, which are the fun questions uh, that really showcase the guests. And and obviously Josh has demonstrated his, he's got a lot of experience thinking about cocktails and and making them. So I'm, I'm excited for this lightning round. But... Vermouths. There's sweet vermouths and there's dry vermouths. Sweet vermouths are generally red and sweeter and usually used with darker spirits. And dry vermouths are generally clear or yellowish in color and generally used with clear spirits. Uh, Vermouths are fortified wines that are infused with herbs and botanicals and perhaps bittering agents. And they're they're used in, in a lot of cocktails. They're they're the one of the important supporting casts. Bitters are another member of that supporting cast. They are more concentrated than vermouths, and you rarely use them in amounts exceeding a few drops. There's aromatic bitters, which can be either Creole style or a little bit more herbal. Uh, in the case of Angostura or Peychaud's. Uh, and then there's other types of bitters that you can get to as well. There's pretty much any flavor you can imagine. There's probably a bitters of it. There's hop bitters. There's grapefruit bitters. There's fruit bitters like plum bitters, apricot bitters. They're, those are going to be a little sweeter. You can check out the line of embitterment bitters on modernbarcart.com, uh, which are produced by us and uh, made by yours truly. So uh, if you're interested in those, you can definitely uh, check out the website. And if you have any questions, you can email podcast at modernbarcart.com. We'll be happy to answer any of the questions you have about those bitters. Finally, getting to liqueurs, we have the, the fact that they are sweeter generally than most of the other liquids that you'd be putting into your cocktail. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not equally as strong as some of the spirits that you're going to be using, but generally they fall between 30 and 40%. And there's an important subset of liqueurs called Amari, which is the plural of amaro, which means bitter. And these are bitter liqueurs generally made in Italy, but not necessarily. And these are another important subset of liqueurs that once you start to get into cocktails, you should start to investigate. The only other thing that I'll mention is that the two really important things that we recommend getting for your home bar or bar cart right off the bat are a good orange liqueur and a nice bottle of orange bitters. And to that, I'm going to probably add a bottle of sweet vermouth and a bottle of dry vermouth. Absolutely. Um, So I think think we've given folks really good recommendations. I I really appreciate having your knowledge and your expertise in the room. And so now what we're going to do is we're going to get into the lightning round questions. The questions are short. Your answers don't have to be. And the first one is... What is your favorite cocktail? And I'll put some disclaimers because I know that folks uh, like us tend to change their favorite cocktails or not be able to figure out what their favorite cocktails. If you can't list a favorite cocktail overall, what is a cocktail that you've been obsessed with recently? Well, I do not have a favorite cocktail. To me, it all depends on context. You know, if I'm on a beach in the Caribbean, what I'm going to order is completely different than if I'm at a bar in Washington, D.C. or a bar in London. All right, let's say we're here right now. Right now? 
Well, because we've been talking about whiskey or different types of whiskey, right now I'm thinking about a Derby, which I mentioned earlier is a combination of bourbon and Cointreau, sweet vermouth and lime. Another one is a Scofflaw, which is a combination of rye. I'm a big fan of that. Dry vermouth, not sweet, dry vermouth. A little bit of fresh lemon juice, some uh, homemade grenadine syrup, and some orange bitters. Oh, yeah, that is absolutely fantastic. Uh, and and are, the, are both of those stirred cocktails? They are. Okay. Well, excuse me, the first one is, not the second one, because the second one has lemon juice. The scofflaw. Yes, yeah, scofflaw. Has the, has the, and, and you shake that up, and you, you, you serve right. that up? I personally always, almost always prefer to have my drinks up. Okay. I'm just not a big fan of the ice in it, because if my theory is that if you have ice in the shaker already, whether it's stirred or shaken... You're already watering it down a bit. Drinks in the Wolf Cocktail Den tend to be more <clears throat> alcohol forward, shall we say. So why water them down when you don't have to? Sure. And, and dilution is a subject that we will definitely readdress on uh, not not just once, but numerous times on the on the uh, <laughs> the Modern Bar Cart podcast. Uh, it's really important, and there's many ways to do dilution. And certainly, I think as you get more experience with cocktails, Josh, your preferences on dilution tend to get more common. If you personally make a cocktail the way that we that we uh, you know offer a recipe, and and you just think it's too strong, if you're just starting out, that's that's pretty common so head over to uh, the wolf cocktail den and check out the recipes for the derby and the scofflaw so um i I think i know the answer to this but we've talked about your your favorite cocktail what's your favorite spirit if you had to pick one right now actually i must confess i do not have a favorite spirit okay because because i will tell you when it comes to the clear liquors if i can divide it that way i'm a big fan of vodka uh when it comes to the darker liquors it's probably a mix between bourbon and rye. Call me a proud American. You know, I do like the the darker spirits. Uh, bourbon and rye are not really that far removed when you get into it. Mm-hmm. One's a little spicier. One's a little sweeter. You're not going to go wrong with either one. Great. Yeah, no, bourbon and rye are great spirits. I, I feel like you're in good company with having those as, as your favorites for sure. Next question. If you could have a cocktail with anyone in the world, past or present, who would that person be? Where would you go? What cocktail would you order or make? Just paint a picture for us. All right. You're probably going to kill me, but I don't care. There are two people. They're both my late grandfathers on my maternal and paternal side. I never knew my maternal grandfather. He died when I was two or three, so I never really knew him. My paternal grandfather died when I was in high school, so I have memories of him, but I did not actually know him as an adult, you know. So from what I've heard from a little I know about my maternal grandfather, Barney, he came to the United States when he was a little kid. I mean, he was an immigrant. He... He came through England because even though he was from the part of the world that I mentioned earlier, uh, apparently he had some sort of infection, so he got quarantined for a little bit. And then he came over to the U.S. when he was a little kid, six, seven, eight, and he would have come of age around Prohibition time. Actually, both my grandparents would have, uh, grandfathers would have come around during age of Prohibition. But I suspect that with my maternal grandfather, 
I would be somewhere. It would definitely be a whiskey-based cocktail. It would probably be in a speakeasy somewhere, and I mean a speakeasy. You go, you you do the time travel thing, and uh, oh my god, yes, awesome, yeah. Oh my god, yes, because prohibition. Where was it, this? Can I ask where where he he Boston, resided? Boston, 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 baby, love it. My guess would be, you know, if he was into this, probably something like a Ward Eight, something that came out of Boston, you know, a proper Boston cocktail. Sure, uh, you know, something that is. Whiskey based. Yeah, there are some fruit juices in it. There's a lot of good fruit juices and it's a fantastic cocktail. What's award eight? Can you can you enlighten us? <sighs> You're gonna kill me. I believe correct me if I'm D- wrong. Doesn't doesn't have doesn't have to be precise. It's I believe it is rye, lemon juice, lime juice, perhaps a little bit of fresh orange juice. All of this fresh. A little okay. bit of grenadine on top of that. And I'm, I'm missing something. The recipe, again, is on the Wolf Cocktail maybe, Dinner Maybe website. some bitters? Are there any bitters in there? I'm pretty sure there's some bitters. I'm drawing a blank as to what. That's but. a deceptively citrus-forward cocktail for Boston. That's not usually what you think of Boston uh, cocktails tasting like. He, At least he, not what I think of. Well, true, but it well, like many proper folk from Boston, it's going to knock you on your new you, you're, you know what. You're from Massachusetts. You know what I'm talking about. I do indeed. I, I, I'm, I'm familiar familiar with the uh, the Boston ethos. But, uh, but I can I can uh, definitely see that because um, he was one of those he was one of those men, as I understand it, he was not formally educated because at the time he you know he didn't have that luxury, he didn't have that opportunity. Sure. And he was a very smart man, just extremely smart, just not terribly well educated. That's what I would see drinking with him. My paternal grandfather, who I did know until uh, he died when I was high school age, you know, he uh, he ran a fish store. It's now uh, in, in Boston. So during Prohibition, I'm quite certain he knew people who may or may not have been rum runners during Prohibition. Ah. Yes. Come on. The docks in Boston? Yeah. What, are you kidding? I, I heard, uh, yeah, I, th- I mean, a great example of, you know, or a great taste of, of uh, Prohibition history is if you, you've been able to watch the, uh, the the show Boardwalk Empire. They have a yes. pretty good depiction of rum running. But yeah, yeah. Exactly. All up and down the East Coast. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, one of the funny things when I was a little kid, well, not a little kid, I was in high school when my father was extremely mortified when I figured out that my grandfather, of course, cheated on his taxes. Well, duh, you know, because that was the sort of thing back then, right? It's what he got used to. Now, my paternal grandfather, you know, he ran a business. It was a little different. Sure. So... Uh, he was very particular about many things. Uh, I, I like to think that one of the ways um, that I take after him is that he was very particular about how he dressed. Okay. You know, when he wore a suit, which is not often, but when he wore a suit, it was just so. It was to a T. And, you know, when a man wears a properly fitted suit, the little details, whether mm-hmm. it's Personally, I, pers- I, I prefer the cufflinks or a tie bar or a pocket square. Yep. It's the little things, the things that you might not pick up on initially. All the above, yeah. You know, but that's really what puts it all together. He was one of those sorts of men. So I could see with him, again, Prohibition era, because they both came at the same age, in a different sort of speakeasy where you ordered your drinks just so. You know, you were talking earlier about the jazz. 
you have the music where you notice it, you notice it a little bit, but you're not quite aware of it, but you're aware of it. Yeah. And it's just so, I can see something ordering, you know, something like a classic vodka martini, mm. something that's just really well put together with yeah. the, just the right amount of vodka, the right, of, well, because I'm a vodka guy and well, so is he, because that's where he was from originally. You know, the right amount of vodka, the right amount of vermouth, just a hint of bitters. Yeah. Puts it all together, boom, you got it. It's sort of a, a cocktail where if something's off, you'll know. And so the confidence to, to be able to order that drink at a place where you know it's going to come out correctly is is sort of right. uh, with, with that with that sensibility. It kind of fits in. It's like you, you're, you're, a, you're a person who cares about the details. And so you're going to go to a place that also cares right. about the details and is, is ready to listen to you. Because think about it this way. I mean, like when you order a, a cocktail like that, there's enough variations on it where you have to kind of be the quarterback of that cocktail. When I go and order a martini at a bar, I don't leave anything up to chance. I say, hey, I want a four to one gin martini with a lemon twist. Right. And, and, and you have and, to have that. It's that I wouldn't say quiet confidence, but it's that calm confidence. Those are the people I'd want to have a drink with because I I did not have the luxury, I did not have the ability to be able to drink with them as an adult. Right. Um, that, that's an awesome answer. My next question is, are there any cocktail books that have been particularly influential to you, whether those are recipe books or other types of cocktail books? Well, I can think of a couple of books. I, I will say as a preface, I generally suggest go on the internet, I believe, you mentioned earlier about Imbibe, Imbibe magazine, and they have a very good website that not only discusses the recipes, but discusses the history. Yep. Because I'm a history dork, I mean, that's nirvana for me. Uh, but folks, of- I'm going I'm to interject. One of the things, folks, that I do, like when I, just to describe my, my personal Googling practices, is that when I search for a recipe of something that I know I should know how to make but don't know how to make it, I will scroll down until I find the imbibe link. Absolutely. And and there's other links that are going to show up first, but I scroll down to imbibe because they're not the best optimized website in terms of search engine optimization, but they'll almost always show up on page one and they're going to provide the simplest, most classic version of that drink. If you don't like theirs, go somewhere else, but at least start with them because they're going to provide, you you can have confidence in that recipe. Right. And, And they are a fantastic base upon which to improvise or experiment. I'm a big fan of them. But in terms of books, uh, there are two that have been very interesting to me. Uh, One is The Year of Drinking Adventurously by Jeff uh, Cialetti, C-I-O-L-E-T-T-I. Met him at Tail last year. Really really cool guy. He also has a great um, interview on a podcast called The Speaking Easy Podcast, uh, which which I will always recommend you folks check out. But the other book I will tell you that it's actually it's not really much of a cocktail book; it's more of a history book. Is Last Call by Daniel Okrent, O K R E N T. It's uh, the rise and fall of prohibition. It is a fascinating, absolutely fascinating book, discussing exactly what I just said. You know, not it's not really about the cocktails, but it's about the forces that generated prohibition, which at least in my personal opinion, was pretty much a disastrous experiment in social engineering. It was an experiment. We'll, we'll put it that but, way, yeah. But I guess 
you know, silver lining. My God, there were some great cocktails that came out of Prohibition. Yeah, so definitely check those out. I want to do the last question here, the last big question before we talk about how folks can get in touch with you, Josh. Um, if there's one piece of advice, and this doesn't, it, it can involve bitters, liqueurs, and vermouths if you want to, but it doesn't necessarily have to. If there's one piece of advice that you could give somebody who's just starting out building their home bar or bar cart, what piece of advice do you think is critical? It's be willing to be versatile. There is a lot of options. You will be surprised once you dive deeper into the world of cocktails just how interrelated a lot of these drinks are. Uh, we talked earlier, for example, about the Negroni and the Boulevardier. You switch one ingredient, it is two totally different drinks, but you know, it's a whole new world out there. Sure. And you know, be strong, be courageous, don't let tradition hold you back. Be mindful of it, but go forward. Yeah, and, and I think that's great. And I think the only word that I would switch out with that, and I think that you'd probably agree with my switching out of it, is don't just be mindful about tradition. Be curious about tradition. <laughs> because being curious about tradition, you learn about it, and then you can make your own decision about when to go with the grain and when to go against the grain. And that is when you're going to be able to make those sort of joyful discoveries and decisions that are going to make you kind of step back and say, damn, like I just made this drink. This is my drink. I am blown away by how much I enjoy this. And, and it, it's, it's you, it's, it's an artistic creation. But, so yeah. Well, and I will tell you some of the fondest cocktail moments I will ever have will be some of my original creations. Uh, I think that's a really lovely, uh, meaningful note for us to wrap up on. And the only thing I'm going to ask, Josh, is if you can give folks verbally now, uh, knowing that, that we're also going to put it in hyperlink form and in the show notes, but how can people get in touch with you if, if they want to ask you questions about, I, I have a million questions for you about cocktails. Um, <laughs> assuming, assuming other people have just listened through this, like I have, and, and are just, just want to ask you questions and grill you on stuff. How do they get in touch with you? Well, First off, I look forward to the grilling. I, I, it would be my honor. Uh, the best way to do it by email, it'd be Wolf Cocktail Den, W U L F Cocktail Den at gmail.com. The uh, website, the URL that is for the blog is Wolf, W U L F Cocktail Den dot com. Uh, that would be a good way. I'm also on Twitter, although unlike our current president, I'm not on Twitter 24-7. But there is a Wolf Cocktail Den handle, uh, although I do not, I freely admit I do not check that quite as frequently. I would suggest either going straight to the website or the Gmail. Sure. Yeah, that's great. I think folks are, are, you know, who have questions will be really interested in reaching out to you. So my personal ask for folks who have listened to this episode would be, Start building your supporting cast for your bar, bitters, liqueurs, vermouths, pick up the stuff that we recommended, and hey. orange bitters, probably an aromatic bitters, a dry vermouth, a sweet vermouth, and an orange liqueur that you can afford. Fantastic. But if there's a particular flavor that you like in addition to orange, go for it. Right. 
Yeah, definitely go experiment. I think we've given you enough information, enough little etymological digressions in this episode to keep you <laughs> satisfied for a little while. So, folks, thank you for listening. And uh, Josh, thanks for being on the podcast. It's been my honor, sir. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. I just want to remind you that this episode might be over but the journey and the discussion are just beginning. If you're excited about the content in this or any other episode, please tell us. Follow us on Instagram at Modern Bar Cart for recipes and great product tips, or stalk me personally at Quixologist. That's Q-U-I-X-ologist. You can also like us on Facebook by searching Modern Bar Cart, or hit us up directly via email by sending a note to podcast at modernbarcart.com. That email address, by the way, is also the one that you should use if you've got any cocktail or home bartending related questions you'd like us to address, or if you think you have a unique perspective on the cocktail world and would like to be interviewed for all to hear. I'll see you next time, but until then, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. Boldly.